get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. It's Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. I'm glad to report that I'm joined, as usual, by the three stars of our show, our Goodfellows. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and the economist John Cochran. And if you notice, I did this out of order because we want to focus on John Cochran for a minute. Something very special happened today at the Hoover Institution. Our friend John Cochran was uh, named a winner of the 2023 Bradley Prize in honor of, and I quote, those who, quote, restore, strengthen, and protect the principles and institutions of American exceptionalism. Past honorees, including his fellow Hoover economist John Taylor, Goodfellows fan favorite Victor Davis Hanson, and a promising young academic named Ion Hersey Alley. John, congratulations. What a steam company to be in. Uh, it's certainly a, a steam company. I, I feel unworthy, but it uh, certainly um, it's lovely to know someone out there is, is listening to my little scribblings, and it inspires me to do even better and to, to slowly become worthy of this over time. <laughs> Neil, uh, HR, anything you want to add? Hey, congratulations, John. I mean, super well-deserved. And, you know, I, I, I mean, your scholarship is, is impeccable, but it's also accessible. Even washed-up generals can begin to learn something <laughs> about economics, man. So so uh, congratulations. Really, I mean, it's, it's great for you and obviously for the Hoover Institution. And, John, I hope it's just the first of, of many prizes that you'll win for the fiscal theory of the price level, which is a seminal book. And, uh, and with every passing day, I think we're going to see just how profound uh, your insight is uh, into our economic predicament. So may this be the first of many prizes. Thank well you, said, Neil. It's a special show because of John's uh, great honor, and it's also a special show because we're doing something a little different. Today, a few days ago, we put out a video in which I asked you, our viewers, to send in questions to Neil and HR and John, and you crushed it. You sent in hundreds of questions. Uh, the reach of Goodfellows never ceases to amaze. We received more questions from people living abroad than we did here in the United States. 31 countries in all, encompassing six continents. We're waiting for that elusive question from Antarctica, so if you're out there, please send it in. And gentlemen, if you're ready, start your engines. Here we go. Our first question comes from Doug in Vermont. He writes, is time on the side of the Russians or the Ukrainians? HR, why don't you take that? I mean, that is the question. And as you know, you know, our director, Condoleezza Rice and, and uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates wrote an essay in saying time is not on, on Ukraine's side in an effort really, I think, to stop this incremental approach to providing support to the Ukrainians. So you know, I guess I guess my answer would be it depends, right? It depends on if the Ukrainians can succeed uh, in mounting a sustained counteroffensive in, in, in Ukraine uh, in, in the near term uh, faster than Russia can can generate more combat power. I think I think that's quite likely actually in the near term, and then in the long term, it is it is whether or not it really the United States. Europe, we saw the the IMF act here. Uh, it can help Ukraine jumpstart the, the the regeneration of economic activity and have a financial plan for the long term viability of Ukraine. Remember, Russia you know, has been trying to choke Ukraine out here essentially, uh, and and to compare that to the long term effects on the Russian economy of sanctions. So I guess I don't know, but I think those are the factors to to look at in the short and the long term. I'm optimistic though that Ukraine can win. If we stop incremental support uh, and, and if we continue the maintenance uh, on the sanctions 
against Russian entities, especially those co connected to Russia's uh, ability to maintain its war-making machine. Mm -hmm. Neil, what say you? Well, a week ago, uh, I was very privileged to be a participant in a major conference on this subject, mm -hmm. uh, organized by the Hoover Military History Working Group, uh, which is led by our our good friend, Victor Davis Hanson. And I was very struck in the course of a day of deliberations by the sober mood that, that prevailed. I would say that uh, the, the most uh, powerful contributions uh, from uh, Steve uh, Kotkin, our colleague here uh, at Hoover, and uh, Michael Kaufman emphasized the extent to which in a struggle between a large power, and Russia is large demographically, uh, large economically, and large, of course, territorially relative uh, to Ukraine. Time is on the side of the larger power. And uh, nothing that has happened in recent months has, I think, uh, greatly improved Ukraine's chances. We now know much more about Ukrainian casualties uh, than we did uh, just a few weeks ago. It's now clear that Ukraine is pretty much out of the Western trained officers and, and men who fought so uh, heroically in the first phase of this war. It's having to bring in Soviet era officers. That is going to impede its, its war uh, fighting capability. It is clear that China is now backing uh, Russia right up to the edge of triggering sanctions. There's a lot of dual use uh, material already going into the Russian war machine. And Xi Jinping's visit uh, to Moscow turned out to be at least uh, a verbal uh, sign of support, if not a material sign of support for Putin. So I'm afraid, I think the outlook is bleak. Uh, we must hope that Ukraine's impending offensive proves me wrong, and that once again, Ukraine can surprise us and drive Russia back closer to the Russian border. But it's hard to believe that time can be on the side of Ukraine, uh, especially given, I'm afraid, Western democracies somewhat uh, somewhat checkered track record when it comes to sustained commitment in conflicts uh, of this sort. Sorry to sound uh, like the Debbie Downer on this one, but it's it, it was not just my feeling, but the impression I think of most people at fr last Friday's conference that the time is now increasingly on Russia's side. I hate to say that. Can I, can I just interject something just quickly? I'm reminded of a story of when when Grant in his first battle, right, he's, he's riding toward the front and he sees casualties coming back and it looks really bleak, you know, and and he gets and he gets to the front and then he sees, you know, he's, he sees Sherman stabilizing the front and realizes that actually the enemy is in much greater disarray. And he writes in his memoir that the distant rear of an army is not the best place from which to judge what is going on in front. And, and he didn't get a sense for really the moral dimension of the battle until he was actually in it. I think that that's what's on the Ukrainians' side. I think it's hard to quantify Ukrainian will. And even though demographically Russia looks big, how many military age of, of, of the recruiting the population that can be recruited are really willing to serve? And I think that's a little bit of an equalizer uh, between Ukraine and Russia. But Neil's right to point out you have to look at the casualties and the will and the capacity on both sides and the skill level uh, as well. So. I just want to interject that because I'm not I'm not as as, as uh, pessimistic as Neil here because I believe the Russians are getting their asses kicked at a high cost to, to the Ukrainians around Bakhmut, but that but the Russians are trading thousands of casualties for hundreds of meters 
Okay, but I just wanted to respond to that, Neil. You know, to, to you know, to play my role as the more optimistic uh, of the good fellow before it goes to John. Jump in here, John. Well, I think you guys are framing it too narrowly. The question really is: is time on the side of the U.S., our Western allies, and our remaining friends, or is time on the side of the emerging and and forming alliance of Russia, China, Iran? and the people standing around the edges trying to decide who's going to come out on top, uh, India, South Africa, the rest of Africa, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> now, I'm, I'm a little bit of a hawk on this war because it strikes me this is our war, not just Ukraine's war. Uh, if we were to win it quickly before that alliance can really deepen, things would be much easier than letting it sit and fester and do just enough to stop them from losing but not let them win because that alliance <clears throat> is gaining strength politically and uh, militarily. Um, as far as the long run, I just want to say, so I'm in Tokyo right now, which didn't look so good in August of 1945 and looks pretty darn good now. Uh, countries can, can rebuild from rubble uh, given the right circumstances. Thank you. Question from Richard in London. He writes, with President Xi's visit to Moscow this week, what is China's geopolitical strategy towards Russia? With America and its allies pouring in so much of its military and economic resources in the Ukraine war, does China see it in its geopolitical interest for the war to continue as long as possible? Neil? This is a very difficult question to answer because we, we know what was said for public consumption, but not what was said behind closed doors. Right. I don't think uh, this is now a, a friendship without limits as it was prior to the war, at least in the language uh, of their last uh, pre-war meeting. It's possible that China is pressing uh, Russia to consider some kind of uh, peace negotiation, although I don't think any kind of negotiation is conceivable until after the next Ukrainian offensive. My own somewhat cynical view is that this war is serving China's interests very well, and why would they want it to stop? It's absorbing American energies. Uh, it's absorbing Western resources. It's distracting attention uh, from Asian theaters of great uh, interest to China, not least Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So I, I regard the Chinese peace proposal as something that is essentially for show and not sincerely intended uh, to end the conflict. I, I think the key point is we can't afford you for Ukraine to lose, and China can't afford for Russia to lose. And that is why this war is going to drag on. Uh, I think one reason that she went uh, to Moscow was more to make sure that Russia doesn't fold. And that, I think, is the significance of the increased Chinese supply of dual-use uh, equipment, rather than to try to press Putin uh, to settle, which some people hoped uh, Xi Jinping might be intending to do. Uh, so I, I think you're seeing here uh, a really important uh, globalization of the Ukrainian war. Uh, not only was she in Moscow, the Japanese prime minister was in Kiev with making a surprise visit with obvious symbolic significance. Uh, this is no longer a regional East European conflict. Uh, this is now part of a global struggle, which I've been calling Cold War II until everybody sick of hearing me say it. But that, I think, is the real significance of, of Xi's visit. HR? Hey, I think China's got some real problems <laughs> because I think doubling down uh, with, on on the relationship with Putin, I think that's going to really is going to suffer even greater reputational damage. So here you have the leader of a country who's presiding over genocide, meeting the leader of a country who's just been indicted by the International Criminal Court for kidnapping you know tens of thousands of children. I mean, that doesn't seem like a good look to me. 
And I think what's tr- what's shifting against uh, against uh, China is people are fed up with you know China's narrative that you can't go meet with any leaders in Taiwan while he goes and meets with Putin. You know who's who's just been indicted by the International Criminal Court. That doesn't kind of sound persuasive anymore. And I think that Europe has shifted in its in its attitude toward China in large measure because of the wake up call of the Ukraine war and especially the degree to which it exposes that hey it's a really really bad idea to give an authoritarian hostile regime coercive power over your economy. So I think what you're going to see is is a continued selective but accelerating decoupling uh from from commercial and financial relationships with China that are ultimately going to redound to China's disbenefit um especially with financial flows going into the country and of course I defer to Neil and and John on on their analysis of that but that's my feeling is that China's going to suffer reputational damage and economic damage based on doubling down on the relationship with Putin. Mm-hmm. John, anything you'd like to add, or do you want to move on to these juicy? No, economic- I want. No, no, I, <laughs> I always learn more from uh, from the other guys than from answering economic questions. Uh, so what you're saying, guys, is that uh, China wants Russia not to lose, but doesn't necessarily want Russia to win, just like we seem to want Ukraine not to lose, but not necessarily to win. Uh, so it's in China's interest to let this thing drag on, chew up, uh, start chewing up Western munitions, start chewing up our attention, because, of course, their eyes are on Taiwan. And the longer this thing drags out and, and chews up our time and attention and shows our unwillingness to stop and, and fight, um, uh, that that certainly says, you know, is the, if the U.S. is not going to go in and provide air cover for Ukraine, are we really going to go in and, and, and fight for taking uh, taking Taiwan back? Less and less likely every day this thing goes on. Let's stay with you, John. We have a question from John in Oregon who writes, for John Cochran, after Silicon Valley Bank, aren't insurers and pension fund managers also facing risk from inflation and interest volatility? How bad does that look? And also as a follow-up, John, is anybody in Tokyo using the word contagion? Um, uh, insurers and pension funds. Well, they're they're exposed to whatever risk they chose to take on. There's the hilarious example of UK pension funds who put a big bet on that interest rates would never go up. And it worked out about as well as Silicon Valley's big bet. A properly run insurance or pension fund doesn't care what happens to interest rates because they've they've locked in what it takes to make their payouts. I haven't looked at the uh, I haven't looked at insurance and pension funds. I am shocked. Uh, that despite the announcements, the year of it, there's got to be military analogies here for HR. Uh, you know, that I, I guess I can I say the Fed wrote the mind, uh, sorry, Mein Kampf, we're going to raise interest rates. And nobody paid the slightest bit of attention to building some defenses against the, the raising of the interest rates. Uh, and least of all, the Fed's regulatory uh, departments. Um, contagion is one of those. Let, let me tell you a secret. Nobody knows what it means. It's all these fancy economic words that people like to toss around. Who knows what it means? Uh, I'm in Tokyo where everyone still wears masks. The fashion is to, to wear it just a little like this. A surgical mask with your nose open does nothing, but everyone does it. So, And I think we're doing something like that for a financial contagion. <laughs> Neil, let me run this one by you, and not just because it's from John in Gillingham, UK. He writes, in retrospect, it appears like the historically low interest rates we may have had throughout recent times have been a major mistake. These mistakes were made by some of the world's brightest minds. What do you think is the source of this failure of judgment? And how can we how can we make sure our institutions get these kind of decisions right moving forward? I, I'm a little confused here, Neil. I think most people who got a 3% mortgage in 2000 and in 2021 are not complaining about past uh, past rates. I'm certainly not complaining. I uh, just wish I'd locked in for longer. Mm-hmm. I think 
it's a mistake to see this uh, as a sort of simple policy error. One has to remember that powerful structural forces were driving down uh, nominal rates. This was what Larry Summers uh, referred to as secular stagnation, reviving an old idea. And I think it's a mistake to imagine that central banks were entirely in control of this process, which had a great deal to do with demographic changes, with the so-called Asian savings glut, technology, etc. So I think there was a downward trend in, in rates that uh, maybe wasn't secular, because uh, it hasn't lasted that long, but it was certainly not something driven entirely by policy. Moreover, when the financial crisis of 08-09 struck, uh, the correct thing for central banks to do was uh, to cut rates uh, to try to prevent uh, another depression. They had to do more than that because, of course, rates were already quite low. And that led to a great deal of improvisation, quantitative easing, forward guidance, and a bunch of, of other innovations in central banking. The mistake came later. I think there were two phases to the mistake, and I wonder if John agrees with me. There was a failure to normalize or raise rates, let's not use fancy language, uh, in 2018, when things really had moved uh, far away from uh, financial crisis conditions. And I think the Fed uh, blinked in the face of a really mild stock market correction at the end of that year and, and threw away the chance uh, to establish more normal market rates, more normal short-term rates. And of course, the second great mistake and the bigger mistake was in 2021, uh, when uh, the Fed was essentially asleep at the wheel uh, as the economy came out of the pandemic with uh, efficacious vaccines. The Biden administration embarked on a reckless fiscal splurge that wasn't necessary and generated uh, inflationary pressures on the fiscal side. And the Fed accommodated that and only really woke up when the inflation mistake had well and truly been made. So I think that's how I would define the mistake, not as something uh, prolonged over a period, but as a series of misjudgments by uh, the Federal Reserve in 2018-19 in and again in 2021. John? Yeah, I would add, there's this, there's this myth we pass around that by keeping rates low, the Fed stoked financial bubbles and so forth. Uh, and I think it's a myth. Uh, Neil said exactly. Rates were going to be low no matter what the Fed wanted to do. This, I see very little connection between the level of interest rates and the willingness to take financial risk. Um, borrowing it at one and lending at two is the same as borrowing at five and lending at six. Uh, that's the difference between the level of interest rates and the willing to, to take, take risk on. Um, so why do we get into trouble? It's not the Fed holding interest rates low for so long. Um, it's a combination of moral hazard and, and uh, shockingly incompetent or ineffective regulation. Uh, everybody knows a bailout's coming, so everybody was levering up and, hey, guess what? The bailout came. It turned out to be right. Uh, so, so putting on a lot of, uh, taking on a lot of risk, whether interest rates were 1% or 3% made a lot of sense. And then uh, our, our regulators just failed to see obvious things in front of them. It's, it's not a personal fault. It's an institutional fault. Uh, 100,000 pages of regulation, you, you couldn't see your way to uh, uh, back to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee. Central banks have just a lot less power than we think. Uh, Neil's right. Uh, they should have reacted quicker. They should have seen inflation coming. Uh, somehow, five trillion bucks of fiscal stimulus is nowhere in the Fed's model. But it was the fiscal stimulus that did it. And there was actually limited things the Fed could have done to stop this from happening. 
HR, we got a question from Ajay in New Jersey who writes, I am a strong supporter of Israel. I respect Israeli power and support U.S. military mm-hmm. aid to Israel. Unfortunately, millennials and Gen Z seem to be souring upon Israel. Does the panel believe the U.S.-Israel relationship can stay strong in the future? And will we ever cut military aid to Israel? HR, why don't you take the lead on that? Yeah, I think it's going to stay strong. I mean, the, the bonds that we have with 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 Israel, I think, are, are going to remain strong going well into the future. Uh, you know, Walter Russell Mead just wrote a, a book on the U.S.-Israeli uh, relationship that's quite good and describes you know, the, the historical, the, the cultural bonds, so the, the bonds associated with uh, uh, with you know, our, our democracies. And, and, and you know, I, I think that we we're entering a difficult period because of some of the generational shifts associated with what I would say is in, in many ways like the new left interpretation of history and the way that that is taken over in humanities departments has affected young people. I mean, it's it's sort of an it's an <laughs> it's a post-colonial anti-US, but but it, it's also an, an anti-Israel sentiment that you see uh, on many college campuses. But I think as people grow up and they, and they look at at the vibrant democracy that that uh, that Israel is and, and a recognition that the Israeli people have a say in how they're governed. Uh, and I, I think that they kind of can grow out of that. The problem now, I think, in, in Israel is the are the internal issues that show division in Israel in ways that I think is, is troubling to all of us now. Israel is obviously not in a in a safe region. Uh, it's in a, in a region that that um, you know that is dangerous because of jihadist terrorist organizations, but even more because of the Iranian you know four decade long proxy war against Israel. Uh, there are dynamics in the region that have been unleashed recently that are positive in terms of the Abraham Accords and ones that might be negative, you know, in terms of the China uh, brokered deal between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. So this is a period of increasing concern for me in terms of not just you know, the, the violence in the, in the West Bank that we've seen, uh, but also some of the external dynamics that are shifting. And so Israel deserves, I mean, our, and needs our, our support. Um, but of course, as you know, you know, Israel is, is strong on its own um, from an economic perspective, an innovative innovation perspective, uh, and within the IDF. But I, I guess the bit, the thing that people thinks about this from, you know, an historical perspective as well is, you know, when I saw that there were IDF pilots who weren't flying, you know, in, in protest uh, due to the, you know, I, I mean, due to this, you know, this, uh, this pending legislation to limit the powers of the judiciary. I mean, that's, that's a cause for concern in terms of, you know, does this internal strife, political strife, bleed over into military readiness and effectiveness. But Neil, do you have any thoughts on, on what's going on in, in, in Israel these days? Well, it's a very rapidly changing situation. And uh, it almost seems as if uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, not only uh, is there a domestic political crisis, well, that's normal in Israel now. We, we'd be surprised if there wasn't domestic political crisis. Uh, but at the same time, there have been major geopolitical shifts that are greatly to Israel's disadvantage, of which the most important is the Chinese brokered rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that is a major uh, diplomatic setback, not only for Israel, but also for the United States. Nothing illustrates how badly wrong Middle Eastern policy has gone uh, since 2020 than this. Uh, so not only is Israel in domestic disarray as usual, but more importantly, I think there's been a major shift uh, 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 to the disadvantage of Israel. And, and it signals the end of what was a very successful strategy of isolating Iran and lining up uh, Israel with the Arab states, uh, including, uh, it seemed possible, Saudi Arabia. That now seems much less likely. Mm-hmm. John, anything you want to add? 
Well, the Saudis um, lining up with the Iranians, I, I think is that's related to this grand question of who's on which side, which we're thinking about uh, over Ukraine. Um, Israel is fascinating. Um, uh, I, I love uh, HR's uh, optimism that Americans will grow up and, and recognize what a wonderful country it is, despite uh, what they learn on college campuses. Uh, I wish I could be so optimistic because our uh, ability to screw up our foreign policy is pretty strong. And, and the U.S. ability to, to do things to Israel in protest over things that reflect not really understanding what's going on in Israel are pretty strong, such as the current Supreme Court mess, which is which is a mess. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things Americans treat as obvious one way or the other. Uh, from what I can tell, it isn't. Their Supreme Court does not have the checks and balances of our Supreme Court. Uh, our Supreme Court is nominated by a president, confirmed by a Senate. Theirs is not. And, and um, it doesn't interpret a constitution. It just does whatever it wants. That's clearly an institution in need of checks and balances. On the other side, the checks and balances they're putting into place right now are, are strike me at least, and, and Israelis I talk to, as, as much too arbitrary. Uh, just a single vote of a majority in parliament can overturn it. Well, that's that's back to essentially no Supreme Court with the background of a prime minister who's under investigation for various things. So it needs a reform, but not necessarily this reform. And Israel does not need an incredibly politically divisive event with with you know IDF pilots not flying at this moment of of shakeup in in the Middle East and around the world. This being the beginning of the presidential season, we received several political questions, none more intriguing than this one from Doug from Pennsylvania, who calls himself a centrist Democrat. He writes, General McMaster, will you run for president, please? <laughs> oh, no, thanks. <laughs> give me the short That's uh, no, that's flattering. But, you know, I, I'll say if I could I'd have an opportunity to serve again, I would serve uh, if I thought I could make a difference. But. You know, I think that, um, that there are people better suited for, you know, political careers and political life than me, for sure. We did get a question from Max in Hong Kong who writes, you were president of the United States for one day. What's the first thing you would do? Neil? Forget about the pesky constitution. <laughs> well, no, if you're president, even if it's only for a day, you're entirely uh, bound to uphold the constitution. And so that goes without saying. I, I think the... Uh, the, the thing that I'd be inclined to do would be uh, in that 24-hour uh, period uh, to try to uh, get uh, a change uh, to our legislative process so that the great accumulation of regulation has an automatic uh, sunset clause inserted on every page. Because if there's one thing that's slowly killing the United States, it's the accumulation of uh, superfluous legislation and regulation. Uh, so yeah, I'd spend uh, my 24 hours trying to get sunset clauses into uh, into the enormous uh, red tape mountain that, is, uh, that has been erected in Washington, DC. What would President Cochran do on day one? Well, like, uh, like Neil, I'm, I'm a believer in uh, constitutional democracy and not uh, elected king for a day. Uh, I just went to a conference in honor of Calvin Coolidge's 100th anniversary, and his campaign slogan was Return to Normalcy. Uh, strikes me as an excellent campaign slogan. Not, you know, of course, King Cochran would, would uh, put in the, the libertarian free market nirvana on, on day one. Uh, but you asked me what I do if I were president, and yes, return to normalcy. Beyond, I'm actually, uh, compared to Neil, I'm nostalgic for the era of, of regulation. 
good old regulation with public comment and cost benefit analysis and so forth. Well, now we live in, in government by executive order. I might be tempted to burn all the executive orders and, <laughs> and uh, but not since I'm not King King, I'm, I'm president, but to try and stop this uh, tit for tat executive orders where, uh, where each president burns the preceding ones and then issues a whole bunch of new ones. And President McMaster, what would you do? Well, maybe unsurprisingly, I would direct everybody to look for the opportunities in the greatest problems we're facing. You know, for example, you know, border security and immigration. How about, you know, securing the, the, you know, the darn border? But then also, what about opening, you know, 60 or 70 new consulates in the Western Hemisphere uh, and granting visas for, for those who, who want to come to the United States so that so that people in the region are lining up at U.S. consulates? And by the way, paying visa fees, and by the way, paying U.S. taxes when they get here, and by the way, sending remittances back to alleviate some of the economic difficulties in the region, they're lining up there instead of lining up with coyotes and organized crime networks. So I, I was using that as, as an example of a way, you know, to take what seems like an intractable problem and try to try to flip it into an opportunity. Hey, HR, while you're at it, tell your State Department to get the wait times for tourist visas down in, into... Yeah. The units should be years. <laughs> no, right. the units should be hours, not years. Hours, uh, right. But I want to know where are you going to, so you get to drive the new tank. Where are you going to take the new tank when you're commander in chief? <laughs> South Lawn. You know, I, I'm the no, only- Congress. <laughs> hey, we do need a new tank. We do need a new tank. When I, when I was commander Fort Benning, I wrote the requirements document for mobile protected firepower. Okay. It's, it's a light tank to support light infantry units, right? There's one- company is going to be in every light infantry brigade because, you know, as I've said many times, try to think of a problem that you can't solve with a tank. And so <laughs> that's your campaign no, slogan, no, HR. That is your campaign slogan, HR. That's going on in HR's tombstone, I think. Sweeps apart with that slogan and the promise of, of a new tank. Thanks for America. <laughs> By, by the way, I'm the only unmarried uh, person on this show. So while the three of you are solving the uh, world's problems, I'm probably in the old office uh, putting together a really cool online dating profile. So that's that's my first thing. <laughs> you know, I mentioned the Constitution in this regard, not uh, not uh, shirking the Constitution responsibilities, but because you cannot run for president because you were not born in this country. So that's what I was getting at. Should we be revisiting Article 2, Section 1? You can't run. IN can't run. A lot of remarkable people in this country cannot run because of that provision. Well, it, it does seem rather hard to defend at a time when 14% or thereabouts of the population are now foreign born and therefore disqualified uh, from holding the highest office. Uh, but I, I would sense uh, there would be nothing rather, nothing more futile than to try to amend the constitution given our current political climate. Uh, so I'm 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 afraid I'm just going to have to accept that it's not it's not in my stars uh, to be president of the United States. I'll have to settle for Secretary of State. There are worse jobs. <laughs> <laughs> One final question, gentlemen. Then we're going to go to the lightning round. Another good fellows. First, it's from William in Ontario, Canada, who writes: I would offer that many people have developed a significant distrust of organizations, both public and private, mainly as a result of the recent pandemic advice and actions. Trust is foundational in society. I trust the training and knowledge of my commercial airline pilots. I trust a bridge. I trust the oncoming driver, etc. Is this new low level of trust part of the reasons we're in another period of bank collapses? I'd add, by the way, if uh, the Hoover Institution, what did George Schultz always say? Trust is the coin of the realm. So what about it? I have a short one for once in my life. Trust must be earned. 
Uh, and uh, if with the, the shocking lack of trust in our public institutions comes from the shocking incompetence of our public institutions. And I think the history of COVID is, uh, is a prime example. Come on, guys, uh, start, start earning the trust and you'll get the trust back. Yeah, when people start asking for trust, I'm always reminded of uh, the Jungle Book. And you may remember one of the great Disney songs is Trust in Me by the Snake Car. Trust in me. Trust in me. There's your campaign slogan. <laughs> Beware of any entity that comes asking for your trust. And and I, I'd call attention to Ronald Reagan's watchword, trust, trust but verify. Okay. HR? I think there's a movement toward greater transparency in government, which I think is really important, you know, and uh, I'm thinking of a, a company called OpenGov, for example, which makes local government more accessible to people. It's a, a friend of mine founded that company, uh, someone who has served with in, in Afghanistan. So I, I hope that with more transparency, there comes more accountability and people can restore confidence by really exercising their voice, demanding better. You know, when you're when you're a new lieutenant, you, know, you come in and sometimes and you're in a training exercise or something, you look around and go, man. Things are really screwed up, but you think well, somebody up there must have a plan, and then and then you know, and then you're a major, and you look around and things are screwed up, and you think, man, I don't think anybody up there has a plan. But then when you're a senior person, if things are screwed up, it's your job to make the plan. So a lot of it, I think, is is really people leading. A lot of leaders don't lead. You know, they think that they're just there to go through the motions in a bureaucracy. Well, if you if you're if you're a leader of of an organization, you're supposed to demand effectiveness and excellence and build an environment where you provide, you know, people who work for you for you know, with purpose, motivation and direction. And I think that really, you know, it sounds kind of trite to say it, but to restore trust, I think you need more effective leadership. Just you raise a great point. How, how do you how do you get back there and transparency, uh, honesty, um, when the mistake happens, let's go find the mistake rather than the current, we were always right, cover your butt and, and move on, might be the way that uh, leaders could make organizations that then can earn some trust. Yes. Okay, it is now time for lightning round questions. Lightning round. And we will let the good fellows ask questions to each other. Okay, Neil, there's one I've been wanting to ask you, because I was just watching uh, Tristan Harris's uh he had, a, he had a session in San Francisco on artificial intelligence and the implications of, of artificial intelligence. And this is both for you and for John. But Eleanor from London wrote in, and, and uh, she asked a great question. She said, what is the impact of artificial intelligence going to have on our world? And she mentioned specifically, which I thought was interesting, the military, but then economics and history. And, and so I'd like for, for you and John to take on uh, all three of those, actually, but but I think it's I think she's recognizing that actually AI can have an impact on on history, as well as uh, the future uh, economic and and military um, environment. Well, I think uh, it's interesting that we had so many questions on this topic. Uh, with the release of GPT-4, we go to uh, another level, uh, significantly above uh, Chat GPT, which everybody enjoyed playing with so much. And if you read, as I try to, the people who really understand uh, what is going on in this world and talk to the people who understand what's going on in this world, they will tell you uh, this is a truly revolutionary moment. Uh, I'm writing Henry Kissinger's biography, and one of the more surprising uh, twists in that tale was his discovery late in life of this important point and his 
co-authoring of a book on the subject with uh, Eric Schmidt. Uh, and that book contains an important insight. Uh, it struck me as I was reading it that if you apply artificial intelligence in, in the realm of war, you should be aware because the potential for uh, catastrophic consequences seems very high. Why? Because what we call artificial intelligence should really be called inhuman intelligence. For me, the big takeaway of that book was that when AI learns to play chess, it plays it in an inhuman way. It sacrifices pieces of its own that you wouldn't do if you were a human player. Imagine that translated onto the battlefield HR. It's a chilling thought. So I think we should start calling it inhuman intelligence to recognize that, that we've created a kind of alien life form, which has in some ways superior processing power to us, but in other ways, it's just faking being like us. And this is the most important point about these new programs. These large language models are faking being like us, uh, using uh, the enormous power of computation to predict what the most likely next word in a sentence is. That's what they really do. And we are fooled. Uh, so fooled that journalists think they're forming relationships, meaningful emotional relationships with the AI. So this is a very dangerous uh, transformative technology. Uh, no doubt it has all kinds of benign applications. We know that because of the medical research that's already being done. Uh, and some of that is truly mind blowing. But I think if AI is let loose on the battlefield, uh, we should all feel very afraid indeed. John, how about economics? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with economics. Um, the, the AI, so there's two kinds of AI. There's the AI that learned to play chess. And the way it learned to play chess is by playing millions and millions of games against itself and figuring out what worked. And there, humans learn from AI. I gather from my chess friends that uh, it, it's just what you learn from war games. <laughs> uh, humans are now adapting AI strategies because it's very hard to play chess and, and figure out how things go. Uh, that just seems like making humans better. And in fact, understanding what the AI is doing and why it's doing it uh, deepens your knowledge of chess. The other is these chat programs, which are just predicting the next, next word in the sentence uh, with a lot more than that or, or and filling in. And I think that it's given me a, an interesting, perhaps what we're learning is, is who we are and that we're not as smart as we think we are. And that so much of what we do is, I know what I do is putting in ideas that I get from everywhere and kind of assembling them. I, I'm a chat. I don't have that many original ideas on my own. But that's, I think, what, what we all do. I mean, that's, a, little, that's, that's a, a defensible thing, pulling various things together. And it turns out to be fairly easy to replicate what we do. So that, that tells us a lot about the human condition and, and, and who we are. What is it? Harry Truman said, you know, the, the only thing new is the history you don't know. <laughs> well, so, yeah. And, and the impact on the military is already significant, you know, for, from AI. It's already being applied to identified you know, patterns, patterns of enemy or adversary behavior. I think what's really important, if it can start to identify pattern breaks to provide early warning uh, of new patterns of activity. Uh, and then also in the area of logistics, you might not think about, but AI is going to have a really transformative role in logistics, supply chains, efficiency, and effectiveness in particular to sustain operations. And then, you know, I, but I think the mistake we could make is the same mistake we made about about all sorts of you know data uh, analytical tools and and assured communications and so forth in the 90s is that we could lift the fog of war. I think AI will make will shift war even more profoundly into the realm of uncertainty because of the impact it can have on information operations and deception. You know, and I think there's going to be just so much out there that's bad information that also gets fed in. 
uh, to the artificial intelligence related analytical tools. So I hope we don't make the the, the assumption that we can, hey, the future work can be future efficient, you know, that we can make, uh, we can develop perfect plans and make perfect decisions because AI is going to shift more into the realm of certainty. I think actually the opposite is going to be the case. I have a question for HR from Eric from London. What one or two changes in the security architecture did the Goodfellas see as the most urgent? NATO was a system set up to deal with a specific challenge, the Soviet Union. It's receiving a momentary shot in the arm because of the war in Ukraine. But I believe that any objective analysis would conclude that NATO is not fit for the challenges of the 21st century. So I like this question. One or two changes in the security architecture. That is a question for a former national security advisor, if ever I heard one. <laughs> well, I think I think it's already happening. I think bespoke bilateral and multilateral security arrangements uh, that actually deliver real capabilities that can deter conflict or help you respond more effectively uh, in, in the case of, of conflict. We don't need necessarily treaty alliances. Uh, you can have an arrangement, for example, among allies, like the AUKUS agreement is one of those. Uh, but then there can also be really critical bilateral relationships, like the relationship we have with a tiny country called Bahrain, you know, which, which is immensely important, I think, to security and stability in the Gulf. I look at the Scandinavian countries as really being very responsible uh, about defense and quite cognizant of the threat uh, from, from Russia and also the threat to the Arctic from Russia and maybe also uh, by connection China as well. So partnerships with the Scandinavian countries is a subset of NATO now with Finland and we hope now Sweden eventually uh, getting an entry to NATO. So I guess the short answer bespoke, you know, multi multilateral and bilateral uh, security arrangements that's backed up by real capabilities and and exercises that deliver really combat readiness. John, your turn. Ask a question. Uh, uh, oh, to ask a question. I, I was going to new security architecture was not something I came ready for this morning. Uh, Max from Australia asks us: um, Is there an argument to be made for the U.S. conceding Taiwan if China invades? Considering the economic, human life, and potential nuclear consequences, what reason do we have to believe that China would want to continue expanding its territory post-Taiwan capture? I think uh, that's a good question, and, and we should get into wars with a clear idea of the strategic um, goal of the war. Uh, so China invades, Taiwan takes over. Um, really, what's our long-term goal after that? Well, let's face it. Uh, we yeah. have a commitment not to let that happen. So if we let it happen uh, and said, oh, that uh, Taiwan Relations Act, uh, uh, that's just a piece of paper. We're, we're fine with that. Well, we've done that. Wait, wait, wait. We've done that over and over again. A well, commitment that Ukraine shall have its territorial and, integrity. And how'd that turn out? how did that turn out, John? <laughs> exactly. Red lines in the sand in Syria. We make commitments right, right left and center. So, and get so that's, that illustrates exactly my point. That if you simply walk away from a commitment like that, then uh, it's not just the, the territory and the population that are lost uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, but it's it's not it's it's your credibility as an ally. And that would be the end of American predominance, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but I think in the world. And that's why it would be a disastrous error. HR? I would just say from a geostrategic perspective, combined with understanding what, you know, what the CCP's intentions are, or at least trying to understand those intentions. I think what the Chinese Communist Party wants to do is establish exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific. If you take the map you know, of, of, of Taiwan, uh, and China, and just rotate it 90 degrees counterclockwise. You, you, Taiwan is like the cork in a bottle, 
And if you combine really the the the, the uh, what happens from a geostrategic perspective and the ability to isolate Japan as the as China's major you know, regional rival, and combine that with what China's trying to do in the South China Sea, right? China is already trying to own the ocean in the South China Sea, which is the area through which one third of the world's trade flows, surface trade flows. So, you know, I, I think it would be the beginning of, as Neil said, the end of America's ability to even enjoy freedom of movement and action and trade and commerce in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, the chilling effect you know, it would have on countries in the region would create really servile relationships with many of the countries on the Eurasian uh, rimland that also would allow China to consolidate even, even more influence and, and control and power. So, so guys, uh, I'm, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've said all these things too. And just the question just, I think, needs to be asked, especially in the context, you know, this is what we said about Vietnam. Well, you know, we, we made it through uh, after Vietnam. Uh, when you consider what the costs of an actual, once they've invaded Taiwan, an actual war against China to recapture Taiwan, um, is, is that really something we want to jump into on the theory of, well, they'll influence China yeah. in Japan and they'll take some more islands and so forth. Uh, I think it's worth, I'm still with you, but I think it's a question, it's a question John, worth if I, could, if, I could, if I could just add something here, right? So what we see China developing is our capabilities to take the take Taiwan by force, but also capabilities to keep the United States at bay. That also includes a four orders of magnitude increase in their strategic nuclear forces. And so I think one of the most important aspects of what we do between now and if there were to be a war in Taiwan is to deter it by helping yes. Taiwan gain the strength. Because, you know, one of the reasons we're worried about Putin rattling his nuclear saber is because the reinvasion of Ukraine occurred in, on February 24th of last year. So, hey, let's not go down that path again. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I, I, I think the viewer does raise a good question. I didn't mean to be dismissive of it, uh, but but I but I, I do think it is important for us to ask and answer those questions because the United States needs to have the will necessary to convince the Chinese, right, that uh, the, the PLA, uh, that they can't take Taiwan by force. At, at the risk of dragging this up, but because I, I do think this is an important question. Um, I, that's what I've been saying, that the, our goal right now should be deterrence uh, against China. I was interested by a, a couple of weeks ago, Xi Jinping gave a speech where he named the US and said, you're surrounding me and trying to strangle me eco uh, economically, um, which is, uh, you know, yeah, we are. It's, you know, one true thing he said, uh, which I think makes this even more dangerous. We want to engage and deter not uh, have to get to that point of do we invade and God knows what after that. Okay, like a proctor walking back in the classroom. Time is up, gentlemen. Put your pencils down. This is it for episode one, part one of our two-part mailbag show. On behalf of the good fellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, first of all, thanks again for your questions and tune in about two weeks from now to see part two of this. More questions being answered. Again, congratulations, John Cochran on the Bradley Prize. Stay safe in Tokyo, my friend. Again, thanks for sending in the questions. Thanks for watching the show. We'll see you soon. Take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.